Welcome to another edition of Baseball and Beyond, and today a big thrill of mine. I get to talk it over with the man they call Tuxi. Bob Tewksbury is on the phone. Hello, Bob. Brad, what's going on? Yeah, Tuxi, that's it. They get a, they put the Y on there instead of just Tukes. You know, I like it. you put the Y on there. That's cool. Well, it's a hockey thing, and even though uh, I'm not supposedly a hockey guy anymore, I used to be. But uh, once, you know, the team that I follow loses every year in the first round or does not make the playoffs, I, I stick to my baseball <laughs> roots. Uh, mm-hmm. you. You're a former Cardinal, so people remember you there. You're a, uh, uh, but now you're going to be a big-time, best-selling author. Uh, so you have a book coming out called 90% Mental, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Bob, if you didn't know this, uh, it has been a... Uh, Mental coach? I mean, is that is that what the title would be? What is the title? Uh, yeah, I, I think mental skills coach is the uh, correct terminology in the industry. Um, you know, basically, it's you know for those that are listening, that you know, what's that mean? It's kind of like sports psychology, but the people, uh, the long long version is the people practicing sports psychology uh, that say they're sports psychologists have to have a doctorate in the field of sports psychology. Many of us have masters in the field of sports psychology or sport performance, uh, but therefore cannot use the term psychology. So we go with mental skills coach. You're in. It's it's like you're too smart to have been playing baseball. Is what I think. That's what I go. With. <laughs> I remember the first conversations I had with you. I'm like, okay, why was this guy in the mound for? He should be like operating on people and, and taking out hearts. <laughs> Yeah, that that wouldn't be good. Yeah, I, I, I tell you what, when you throw eighty five miles an hour, you had to use your mind to get people out. That's that's what I say. Hey, I know, I know it, sir. You saw it. <laughs> okay, sixty five miles an hour. Uh, to, right to be right. to open yeah, up. No, you you wouldn't even. Uh, you weren't pitching sixty five. You were <laughs> you were lower than that. So to be yeah. to be open and honest with the audience here, uh, Bob was my first manager at, at fantasy camp and. Uh, he never showed up after my uh, first year. I think I uh, I was the reason why he <laughs> he declined the opportunity to be a manager. But I I remember having a conversation with you about this because you started doing this with the Red Sox. Um, I guess what full time in '05, kind of according to the book. Yep. But but you're one of the first yep. first guys to be hired by a team to do this, right? I mean, a lot of teams didn't. They kind of had guys on the side, but you you were a full time. Hey, I'm in the dugout. Hey, I have an office here. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that that journey, just getting there to become the Red Sox, uh, you know, full time. And am I right? Were you one of the first to 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 be a full time on the staff MLB uh, mind coach? Mind coach. Um, well, yes, yeah, mental skills coach. Yes and no. I, I, you know, the the I was one of the first former players to do it. Um, I think now there are more former players that are getting into the field as the field has grown. But as a you know, in, in 2005, I was probably the only player that played in the big leagues that had a master's degree in sports psych that was doing this work. Um, with regard to the other teams and people doing it in the industry, I think Harvey Dorfman back in the late 80s, early 90s was with Oakland Athletics. Ken Revisa was with the Angels at that time. And Dr. Charlie Marr, who's now with Cleveland, I think, uh, did some stuff with the White Sox, but it was very minimal. You know, when I broke in, we didn't heck strength and conditioning was just coming into vogue and in baseball when, when I broke in. And so this is a relative, this is a really new field. 
especially within baseball, you know, the individual sports, tennis, golf have always had uh, sports psychology or mental skills coaches, the Olympic teams, you know, with the gymnasts and skaters and swimmers and, and things have always had that. But from a team aspect, baseball really just started coming around, I think, in the last five to eight years to where uh, a lot of teams have this position now. And it's exciting to see the field grow. I So when I just remember talking to you about it, too. And I, I was just curious – we, you, the book is called 90% Mental, so it's sort of a play on how much of this game is just thinking and 10% you're kind of throwing out there as being physical. But really, what? how many players do you think miss out on big-time careers because they can't get over the hump of the mental, of the grind um and, and when you and it's so hard to you know pinpoint exactly what you mean by 90 percent mental but i i think of just oh my god my hands aren't in the right place I, I i just i don't feel good at the plate or as a pitcher you know kind of the things you talk about with john lester just tell me a little bit about how many players do you think you know maybe in the last i don't even know how to explain this question but i do you yeah, yeah, no, do you I understand what i um, okay thanks bob yeah <laughs> Yeah, I got, I'll take care of you. Don't worry, it's your show, but I'll take care of it for you. Um, so to uh, one thing, Brad, to go on the title, I think 90% mental is part of it. It goes on to say an all-star pitcher, uh, all-star player turned mental skills coach reveals the hidden game of baseball. And that's what this is really about. Uh, we, You know, people know that the game is mental, but this book takes you inside of what my thoughts were on the mound and, and in particular games, game situations, what Lester's thoughts were, Rich Hill, Andrew Miller. So it's really a, a unique peek inside the game that that shows that the game is 90% mental and it shows that the good players, even though they're still really good, are practicing it. So to your question about players that m- may miss out on this, I think there's a lot. I'll give you a quick story. I was in... I think it was probably 2008, 2009. I was with the Double A Red Sox team in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I 25 players, you know, all around the old minor league locker room. You know, uh, I think I talk about this in the book. There's paper cups, peanut butter, jelly sandwich. You know, guys are uh, hanging out there. The lockers are closed. It's hot. No TV. And I asked them. I said, "How many guys here are playing up to your potential?" And none of the 25 raised their hand. And I said, okay, so if we look at performance, athletic performance as having three domains, physical, fundamental, and mental, with a show of hands, you guys tell me which one is the reason why you're not playing up to your potential. And first I started with physical, and one guy raised his hand, he was injured. And then I went to mechanical and had two guys raise their hand. And then I went to mental, and they all raised their hand. And then I said, but what are you doing about it? And they all looked at me like, ah. Uh. <laughs> and, and so that's, so that's 25 guys in one locker room in double A of 30 teams. And there's four affiliated teams, full season teams with each, within each organization. So I would dare to say that there's a lot of people that aren't using this, uh, as a way in which they can, understand that this can improve their performance and it doesn't guarantee you're going to get to the big leagues and i think that's part of the problem with this is it with this aspect of the mental game is it's not it's not tangible in the sense of 
you know, if I go throw a bullpen or go do something physically, I can kind of measure what that was and understand what I can do better. If you go in the weight room, you can get bigger and stronger. But, you know, the mental game part of that is it takes, number one, it takes total honesty to be able to identify that this is an area that needs to be worked on. Number two, it takes diligence. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a very slow process. But those that are committed to it, do see improvement and make it part of their routine. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just something that has starting to come into the light, which is great. Um, but it's something that still needs some work. Yeah. I think of it. Uh, I, I really, I remember the, the, some of the things I said to you about, I remember Gary Carter telling a story during the 86 world series where it was game six and there was uh two outs and I think he gets one of the first hits of that big rally and he goes I just went to the plate thinking I don't want to strike out I don't want to be the last out of this game Mm. and you told me Mm -hmm. boy that's a terrible thought you shouldn't be thinking that and I said but that's what I feel like I don't want to be the final out of this inning and you said well that's a that's a very bad way to think and I was thinking well I heard Gary Carter say it he's a hall of famer (laughs) so (laughs) you know that's an interesting thing to me that you know why you told me that's a bad way to think well, but so the thing is, so let's look at that a little further. I think those thoughts are totally normal. And for Gary Carter to admit that um, was great. And it shows that even in his greatness, he was vulnerable. He was afraid of failure. I mean, it, and that's why this game and the ability to talk about uh, talk about those fears, it takes more courage to address it and talk about than it does to be macho and hide it. And so I think if I remember that, situation correctly uh what i said is that when you were telling me that you were lying on the ground crying <laughs> holding your bat in your hand saying i don't want to go to the plate no you know, there, no there, there's a difference between <laughs> you and gary carter uh, <laughs> oh man but, so but no but but so what that feeling and it, again it just shows you're there as a fantasy camper a big baseball fan uh, fan and Gary Carter, who's a Hall of Famer, had the same thoughts. And those are normal. And so the, the art of the mental skills coach is to help a player, when those thoughts pop up, how do you still go up to, to bat and give yourself a chance to play? Because if you go up there, you know, a chance to perform, I should say, if you go up there thinking those things, there's probably a good chance you're not going to get the result you want. It's crazy too. When these guys get in slumps, I it's I always just think, all right, well, one, they're hurt, or two, their mind is just completely gone. But I think one of the weird things to me is, I, when I take it to golf, it's so weird mm-hmm. because when I play, and I don't want to sound like I do this a lot, but if I've had a few drinks the night before, maybe too many, mm-hmm. I play so much better, and I'm I think it's because mm-hmm. I'm loose, my mind is asleep. And I'm just hitting yeah. the ball. And it's so different when I – and it just sounds so dumb to say, but it it's the best way I play golf. And then I'm watching Tiger Woods, so I just wanted to get your thoughts because Tiger really is in the news right now. And when you see him, what he's doing, obviously he's been hurt. He's had some injuries. But there's no one, I don't think, mentally better at the game of anything than he is. And when you see what he's doing now, don't you think it's just, man, this guy, once he's healthy – 
he, you know, he had some mental issues too, obviously, but don't, don't you think he's kind of put it all back together? Or what, what do you see in Tiger Woods if you're watching? I don't know if you're watching Tiger the last couple rounds. But. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think he was probably really upset that he had to, that he had to make that long putt to force a playoff. And he, you know, he had a couple of holes where he didn't give himself a chance to really make a makeable putt. But, uh, and, and I think that he probably felt like if I get in this situation, I'm going to win. What would be interesting is to the, I don't know who the guy that won it was, but to his thoughts, if he all of a sudden Tiger's coming up and I get a playoff with Tiger Woods and this guy was basically, you know, out of sight, out of mind for years. And now the guy goes back on Tiger's reputation and it's like, Oh my God, I'm in this, you know, showdown with Tiger. So uh, Tiger is, is, you know, really, uh, it, it is amazing. He is mentally, uh, tough athlete. You can't achieve what he did without having that tenacity and toughness. And, and when healthy, it'll be, it'll continue to see, you know, what he does, uh, in Augusta and, and, and over the course of the season, because, uh, you know, once that clicks and, and the physical and the fundamental and the mental all come in together with any athlete, especially Tiger, they're dangerous. So I did get a chance to read a lot of the book, not the whole thing, but I got to, to some stuff that I wanted to hear about. But I, I don't know if you addressed this. So you did talk about John Lester kind of right out of the bat and that he didn't really want to talk to you until his late 20s. But I am curious about he does have this this thing where he can't throw to first base. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that everyone has talked, like Ricky Ankeel, we've talked a million times about just him losing it. And Gary mm-hmm. Bennett, just guys that – are around fantasy camp really? Gary Bennett lost throwing back to the pitcher. What have you had any conversations? And is there any way that you can? I mean, I just saw him do this this spring where he bounced one to first because he just can't throw it to first. Do you have what are the conversations like on that? And is it is it something that's almost even past your pay grade on on something like that? Or is this something like, hey, I really want to make him right, even though I'm not with the Red Sox, I'm a friend of John Lester's. I want him to be able to throw to first base. Well, I wouldn't say it's above my pay grade. I, I don't know of anyone who has an answer for that. You know, I, I think that anyone that says that they do, I think is, is, uh, wishful. And I think there's no absolute way to, to do that. So quickly on, on John, you know, first of all, it was really, uh, great for him to, to be into the book and, and to share his story of imagery, which was something that he wasn't uh, particularly fond of or interested in prior to that discussion in the dugout in Oakland, which I go into great detail in the book about, um, you know, when we were in Boston, no one runs in the American league. And, and this, he even says that his throwing to first wasn't an issue until he came to Chicago. Uh, and so with any player who has, you know, uh, those type of throwing issues, um, it's such a uh, little understood phenomenon. It, it's deep. I think, in my naive opinion of of this, and and just in some readings, and I'm I'm going to make a statement that's pretty broad based, and 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 I don't have any scientific data to back this up, but it's something that I think is connected. It, it's almost like a, a PTSD type of thing where. Uh, in a sense of the people that I've talked to that have throwing issues all had some significant event affect them. Uh, one event, and I had a pitcher that watched a guy in a big league game watch a guy throw a ball to the screen and thought, oh, my God, I hope I don't do that. 
that would be awful. And then he went out and did it. And it just, it just wrecked him. He, he got a groin injury and then he had a hard time throwing the ball over the plate. I had another kid that was a shortstop that, that threw a ball the first in a tournament game and threw it wild. And the coach just berated him in front of the team. And, um, he had a hard time, you know, throwing the ball the first from, from the short. So, you know, there's numerous things that happened and certainly, um, even though John's with the Cubs, you know, when I was with Boston, the fact that John was in the National League, we talked about that a couple of times and, you know, tried a couple of things. And, and it's just a really, really complicated uh, issue that uh, no one has the answer for, I believe. Uh, Harvey Dorfman, who was one of my mentors and big proponent of the mental skills, like I mentioned earlier, he worked with Oakland, he wrote three books. I asked him about this and he goes, if I had a nickel for every, every person that I've talked to about this that thought I could help them, I'd be a millionaire. And, you know, it's just a, it's really a tough, uh, it's a tough thing, but, um, but nonetheless, um, you know, people find their way through it or they don't or they change position and hit a lot of homers like Ian Keel did. <laughs> so. Right. That's like my fantasy camp, uh, kind of the way I'm going. Since I, I seem to get to, like to the third inning, and then I just can't find the plate. And I think it's it's some sort of PS. Uh, you know, I have that that same syndrome. No, I, I think it's really <laughs> lack of ability, but you can call it anything you want. What a, what a coach you are! What a mental skill! <laughs> this is what I went through every dive down there. I um I want to talk about your career then too because I think it really does help when uh, first of all I, I'm I am really interested in this mental uh, the, the mental side of the game but I think one thing is like you know kids in their twenties I just remember me in my twenties I don't think I'd want to hear any of this you know and I don't think at twenty five mm-hmm. I'd want to hear it and I think that's why it's interesting that Lester sort of finally took you around twenty nine and I, I think it just takes some maturing. But your but your your career was was really good in St. Louis, and I love the story you tell about the '92 All Star Game because mm. you're a guy that you. I guess Joe Torre kind of got you to figure it out somewhere in '93. But in '92, you make the All Star team. You had an ERA around two. You had this great run, and um, the story goes: you pitched the fifth inning, thinking, "Hey, I'm going to pitch the fifth. And then uh, you know most starters don't pitch another inning, and then you. Bobby Cox comes and tells you you're going to come in again, and you tell the story mm-hmm. about how oh my gosh I don't I wasn't ready for this, and I went and watched the YouTube clip of it, and it is crazy. So just kind of relay that story a little bit, and people can read about this one in the book. But I was fascinated by it, and then I had to go. I not only did I have to stop reading, I had to go to YouTube to watch you pitch that game because it is it's one two three in the fifth, and then the sixth here you know here here comes yeah, yeah, here, here comes a yeah, wave, no, uh, and it's all mental. Yeah. I mean, you think it's mental, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, so I was anxious before the game. I didn't, you know, I was obviously excited. I didn't know when I was going to pitch. I probably, I pitched like three days before in LA. I thought it would just be an inning. I just didn't know when. And, uh, Glavin gave up five or six in the first, all on singles or some silly thing. And then Maddox came in. I think Cone came in. And then the phone came down, the rang, rang and said, Tooks, you got the fifth. And I'm like, great. Whew, I'll get, you know, so I went out, I, I had a good clean inning. I think I threw nine pitches or something and got out, uh, Joe Carter, Ripken, and, um, I forget the other guy. Um, but anyway, I got, so then I go back to the dugout. I'm like, Oh, thank God. Inning scoreless, national TV. I'm good. 
And Bobby Cox comes down and, and goes, how are you feeling? And I'm like, great. And he goes, good, you got another one. And I was, and I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> you know, that was my first thought because what do you mean I get another one? I don't, no one pitches two innings in an all-star game. And because I had shut down mentally after that inning, you know, it's the excitement of the game, the expectations. I'd done well. I was relieved. Ah. And then I couldn't ramp back up again. And, and I think that happens a lot with once you turn off the motors and the competitive juices, it's really hard to ramp them up. And that's why I think pitch managers make a mistake when they bring in a reliever to get out of a tight situation and, and they get out of it. And then they go back out there to start the inning thinking they're going to save the bullpen and the guy that gets hit. That's what happens is, you know, so much adrenaline rush to come in to get out of that inning that they, they really leave it out there and, and to reboot all that is really, really difficult. So anyway, I went out. I think I got the first guy out, but then I gave up, you know, double and, uh, I won't go through each of the hitters, but with each, you know, with each hitter that got on, I started to focus more on me. You know, what's happening to me? Why is this happening to me? I can't believe he brought me out back out here again. I started losing focus of what was so successful that whole season was making this pitch and making good pitches. And so it just really snowballed. And, you know, I made a couple mistakes and I ended up giving up five runs or, or something and had to be taken out. And so that was not a good feeling. And uh, but I, you know, that's one of the things about being honest, you know, uh, as, as you hear the narrative of a player, as the listeners hear a narrative of a player post game, when they say, well, you know, what happened on that pitch? And the guy goes, well, I was trying to throw it outside and it came back over the plate. I call bull S bull S I call BS on that. I call, you know what? I was afraid I was going to give up a home run and I gave up a home run. I think the narrative, the internal narrative that athletes have, uh, will never match up with their external narrative of reality when they talk to the media, if that makes sense. Um, they won't, they won't say that I had a negative thought and I didn't, you know, uh, that's why I got hit. And, and you probably shouldn't in the middle of competition, but upon reflection of working with a mental skills coach or keeping a journal or, you know, something in order to get better, you have to identify that. And that's why I was, you know, willing to share my, my inner thoughts in this book with that, uh, that particular episode of that game. Yeah, that was a great story. I know you're, you're with the Giants now, but as you're telling this story and, and the way you're talking about it, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tommy Pham at all with the Cardinals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I know that he just signed a contract, didn't he? Uh, well, he he's still kind of uh, arbitration eligible, so he keeps kind of doing the arbitration. Uh, oh, I got you. Yeah, but there there's not a player like him that I've seen in a while who he exudes confidence in himself. He actually throws out numbers that he wants to achieve, and he means it. You know, some guys will give you that. Ah, you know, I want to hit two eighty. I want to play in one hundred and ten. But he, in the way he talks after post games, I believe that he believes that he mm-hmm. is this good. And I, and I, what I like about that is, I like that. You know, you don't mm-hmm. see he's betting on himself. Um, he says things you just you don't hear players say. And so I, when you talk about you know guys talking after games and and that when he talks, I believe it. And that's what I like about him more than anything is that 
There's no excuses. If he misses something, he's going to tell you, oh, I really missed that. But sometimes he'll say, ah, you know, I'll make, I can make that catch every day. And it just, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing to me because you don't hear it from players anymore. Everybody's kind of conditioned. But, yeah, well, I mean, and good for him. And I think, you know, I don't want to paint every player's comment with a broad brush saying that it doesn't match up. But I do know that, you know, oftentimes when something like that happens, there's a thought that happens on the mound or at the batter's box or in the field that was negative or unproductive and what they were afraid of happening happens. Um, and, you know, good for Tommy Pham if he can – you know, if he's backing up the talk and walking the talk and he's being genuinely honest, then that's awesome. That's refreshing. Yeah. And sometimes I don't know if his, his teammates enjoy it, but I do. Yeah, <laughs> so. I can see, I can see where that would rub the, you know, rub the room a little differently, but, uh, you know, but, uh, that's just, it's all part of the culture of a clubhouse. You know, how do you, how do you guys get together? How do you, pull from the same end of the rope and you know everyone everyone's different and that's what makes this such a challenge over the long season is that's why it's such a mental game you know that's why everyone's got to read 90 percent mental and get get a look inside the game <laughs> to figure this stuff out right good cheap plug good job <laughs> <laughs> I, um so i mentioned joe tory i w- this is funny too i'm so glad i, I wanted to talk to someone about joe tory uh, and so you're here, and I'm going to talk to you about him. I I think as history obviously looks back at his career with the Yankees, he was he's now a, a legend. But the time in St. Louis in '91, he won 84 and 78, '92, 83 and 79, '93, 87 and 75. And I and I think a lot of people back then were like, well, this isn't Whitey Ball, and we're not playing. We're not we're not playing fastball, and we're not in first place anymore. And I think he got a bad rap. I don't think he had any help from the front office when uh, when it came time, in, especially 93. The, the team was close, closing in on the Phillies, and mm-hmm. uh, they bring in, uh, I think, Todd Burns, and it just didn't work out. But I think I think history, if you look back, Joe Torre did, I think, way more than he could have thought of doing with this team. And I, I just remember being younger, thinking, oh, man, you know, this isn't Whitey, and he's, he doesn't use the bullpen right, but... Am I right on that? I mean, I think you guys probably love Joe Torre, and you probably thought, hey, you know, he's doing the best he can. Well, I mean, Joe had been away in the broadcast booth for a while, and he actually, I just saw him this spring, and he remembers his first game managing the uh, the Cardinals, um, I think in what you said, 91, 90? 90 was his, um, yeah, his first year, I 90. guess. Yeah. yeah, I won that game. I was the winning pitcher. It's against the Phillies, and he still remembers that, and so Joe and I have always had a great relationship, you know, uh, and I'll just say that if you look at the roster of that team, of those teams, you had, uh, you know, we had certainly had great players like Ozzy and Pendleton and Vince Coleman, you know, Langford coming in, Gilkey, Jordan, um, you know, and I, and, and Zeal and Pagnozzi behind the plate. I mean, there were some good people there. I think we just, you know, obviously we didn't have the depth uh, and the starting pitching, I think, you know, we, we had Lee Smith. I think we had young pitchers, um, you know, and to be honest, if, if I'm the ace of the staff, you know, you know, I, I'm, I was a three at best, probably four guy. And, and there I was the number one guy and, and I, I love that role, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's always about the players. Good players make good managers. When Joe went to New York, 
he probably didn't change anything. He had good players, and uh, good players make coaches look really, really good. And um, I think that you know we we're just a few players short in St. Louis. I don't know if you know Jeff Supon well, but this is funny that you just said that. He's very cerebral as well, although I don't think he has a doctorate. <laughs> but when he said, "Yeah, I knew I was a three. when he got to Milwaukee, they, you know, he got that big contract, and they paid mm-hmm. him like they paid him like a one. And he goes, "But I'm a three. I know I'm a three. And I just found that was interesting for him to to just even say that he knew he was a three. And I, I find it interesting that you said it. That's just a funny thing to me that you guys know. You know, I would think most guys want to say, "No, I, I have number one stuff." But mm-hmm. to know who you are, your 92 is unbelievable, by the way. I want to talk about that for a second. But just the, the fact of being able to say that has to be the first, I guess, admission, you know, that, hey, listen, I know I'm a three. Don't ask me to be a one. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you, you, well you, have to know, you have to know what you can and can't do. And, you know, I mean, like I said, I was thrilled that during that time, over those two or three years, I was the opening day pitcher. You know, they felt confident in my taking the ball. But... You know, I would have been better supported, you know, if there was a Glavin or a Maddox or Smoltz in front of me, like most of them. And they had three of them in a row. So, um, but the thing with being an athlete is understanding your strengths and weaknesses and what you can and can't do and, and having a realistic expectation of, of, uh, realistic, um, evaluation self-evaluation of your abilities and what you can realistically do in performance and you know i think i probably performed above my means for a couple of years in st louis but i think that was in, in large part due to where i was in my life i loved st louis i was totally comfortable i loved the cj and buddy and the clubhouse guys and joe and you know my son was born there the fans were always so good to me and I was really comfortable and I could just be me. I didn't feel like I had to be somebody I wasn't. And I think that's when players get into trouble is when they, they, they feel like they've got to do something more or something different because of external pressures or ex- external expectations. And that's what, that's what leads to trouble. Yeah, I, I didn't know you then because I was still young and I wasn't working. But the fact that you became friendly with Tommy and Mike Helling made me think, all right, well, he must he must be a real nice guy if he wants to hang out with these guys. Well, I didn't want to. They paid me, actually, to hang out with them, and I'm still I'm expecting a, a recent – I should be getting a check from them soon here. They talked about uh, your – I remember they talked about your art a lot. Do you do any – you still doing some drawings? Oh, yeah, I've got a St. Louis – I got a, a giveaway T-shirt coming out in St. Louis. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but I just did a, a caricature of uh, – uh, Gant, Langford, and and uh, Jordan uh, in the outfield, and then one of McGuire um, that I think they're going to make a giveaway T-shirt of. I, I don't. Know, hopefully, I'm not disclosing anything that's private and public and a big surprise. But now I still do it, and yeah, I'm I'm doing that. I'm playing the guitar a little bit, trying to you know those are those are what I call positive distractions because you know when you're on the road for. 200 days a year and you're doing the same thing every day if you take the ball game with you home you know it's it's really a a tough thing to um to carry around so i was fortunate as a pitcher that i had some free time and i still try to continue those actions or behaviors now that i'm still in the game and uh, it gives me another perspective on what's going on yeah 
I have a couple more minutes. Hopefully you do too. Uh, but I mm-hmm. want I want to mention. I always try to do this because I, I love Joe Pfeiffer and Cadence and everybody. But you you show up at Cardinals fantasy camp, and I remember my first year. I was on part of like a sponsored team, and this team had already known everybody. And and um, I just I, when I got to know you better, it, it, it's so hilarious because you wear the, you have like three pairs of glasses. You have one on your head, one on your eyes, and then one hanging from your neck. <laughs> And these meetings are at like eight in the morning and your hair, you look like Albert Einstein, but you talking about this right. whole, being an artist and a mental coach. I have not met another Bob Tewksbury in my life and I'm very excited that I did. So you should go to Cardinals Fantasy Camp right now. I know I don't know how many times you're going to be going back in Jupiter, but uh, that it is so fun and it, it's just fun to meet a guy like you because like I said, I'd only seen you on TV. I never got to cover you as a player and uh, right. <laughs> cerebral is my favorite word. I, I think that one fits for you. Well, I appreciate that. I have a lot of fun and yeah, everyone this year, my hair was cut a little shorter. They were a little disappointed that I didn't come in with the morning dew uh, <laughs> every morning, but we won the championship. I had a really good team. It was fun to, to win camp. You know, since you left, I've had some better <laughs> players. So, um, you know, better players make better managers, right? So. I, I got this <laughs> nagging injury. It's it's in my head, but it's a, it's definitely yeah, an injury. No, what I what I love about talking to you is, you know, you have such a great wit and humor, and and uh, you know, you can you can poke fun at you, and it's good. You like it. Uh, you can take it. But I crying I crying that. on the inside, just crying all all the days. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, it's really funny. That first year, I thought I was okay. The second year, I, I played pretty good. But the third year, I was so bad. And then the fourth year, I tripped over home plate. Like I hit a line. I only hit. I hit a, like a line drive to left, and I was, I couldn't believe it. I tripped over home plate, and I got thrown out by the left fielder. It was really awful. Um, but no, I think I got old fast. I think I went from uh, from being a twenty five year old to a ninety year old. I want to ask yeah. just a couple couple quick questions, and then I'm gonna let you go, Bob. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, give me a good Pedro Guerrero story, right? <laughs> Pedro Guerrero. I, actually, when we were in, when we were in, uh, we talked about that this year at fantasy camp with Todd Worrell. I remember when Worrell tackled him and threw him into the locker in Bush Stadium because I think Pedro had some guys from the other team. I think we were the Cubs came in after the game and and Worrell said, you know, get him out of here. And Petey said something to him and two big boys there but uh todd tackled him into the locker and stuff was flying everywhere and yeah i'll, I'll never forget that and so and that's what where else is when i when i'm at fantasy camp with him he said you know don't give me any crap tukesbury i'll put you in the locker like i put guerrero in there so i'm like come on bring it on man i mean i ain't afraid of you that's what i tell him to his face anyway i saw uh, that was actually Sammy Sosa. I've heard that story. It was Sammy Sosa who okay. came into the room and ah, talked okay. to Pedro. I've seen Todd, Todd Worrell took a camper, and this is and this guy's a little. I was there. A little chatty, but he put him headfirst into a trash can. In the trash can, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I was there too. And picked yeah, him up with one was, arm. Uh, he didn't need to really use two arms. He just picked him up, threw him in, a tra- and then left him there. It was, yeah, it was put him in head first. Yeah, it was crazy. So you don't have any great dealings with? I think just Pedro is such a, an interesting character. Is that one of the best characters you ever played with? Oh, there's lots. He was one of them. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I can't even. It's sort of talking about other characters. And Pedro was unique in himself. But you know, McGrain was a character. Uh, 
you know, Rex Hudler is a character, you know, there's, there's lots of people that you play with that you find as characters. And, um, I, you know, I, I'd have to spend some time to think about who they were, but the baseball's fun with those people and uh, people that you need. And that's what keeps it going is to be able to have fun and hear stories and tell stories and maybe even tell some true ones. <laughs> what so I I forgot that you came up in '89 and pitched most of September. So I, I was going to ask you about Whitey Herzog, and I thought, oh, I don't know how much, how much he played, but he did play a lot in '89. And the and then in '90, you come up right before he resigns. What was it like around the locker room that at that time? Because I don't think any no one saw it coming, and Whitey just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I guess he saw the free agency coming, and Vince was going to be gone, and Willie and and Terry Pendleton were all free agents, but. What was it like to be around Whitey at the end there when, you know, you just well, know Whitey you know, loves this I, game? I was, just, I was just trying to survive myself. I had, you know, I had surgery. I was up and down from 87 to, to 90. Uh, Whitey leaving was the least of my worries because I was on a, on a big league team and certainly had followed the Cardinals, you know, as a baseball fan and, and later a player in the big leagues. But, um you know, he was just so well-respected. Uh, I've gotten to know him over the years of the C League camp stuff. Uh, he's so well-respected. He's probably a, one of the smartest guys in baseball, as the Cardinal fans know. And the way that he handled the bullpen was just special. Everyone knew their role. He's a great model for managing and coaching. And um, But at that time, to be you know, like I said, to be honest, I was more worried about my own stuff than what was going on with Whitey. Uh, and then, you know, Red was there for a little bit, and then Joe came, and uh, so I've never had a bad moment in St. Louis. Uh, you know, all those people are quality. C.J. Cherry is still a good friend, and he's been doing traveling secretary now for 30-something years, and Buddy Bates and Mike Jorgensen, who is my AAA manager, is still with the organization, so... I've got nothing to, but great things to say about the Cardinals and the Cardinal fans, and um, and I expect them all to go out and buy my book. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let you plug the book one last time. I have one last baseball question. I can't leave without asking about 1992. You have a – I think – I don't know if Cardinal fans remember how unbelievably good you were. I, I used to do a feature called Five uh, uh, Shockingly Forgotten Seasons, and this was like number one, hmm. I thought, because I don't think people remember you were – I mean, the numbers are there, 16 and 5. You're an all-star, but a 216 ERA in the time of the steroid era, 216, 216 all right, let's remember mm-hmm. that, 233 innings and only 20 walks, and it's some sort of record, right? No one had mm-hmm. that many innings with that uh, least amount of walks, and also I think you, your your uh, pace of play would be would be welcomed in today's game. I think you averaged one hour and 27 minutes when you were on the mound. <laughs> a buddy of mine reminded well, me, he's like, ask him about working fast. So just tell me a little bit about everything. The fact that you worked fast, you didn't screw around out there, but not walking people is always a success. I mean, when you see a guy who has 190 innings and 20 walks, you're going to know that he had a good year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I it always, I hate, I've always hated walks. I've but my control was never, it was always good, probably above average, but it became exceptional. And I think it's in the book that um, I rank first on the all-time list in fewest walks per nine innings pitch since the dead ball era, I believe. So, um, you know, my philosophy was, you know, I can't get you out if if I don't let you hit it. And, um, and if you hit it, you know, 
there's a good chance someone's going to catch it, especially with the team we had in St. Louis. So throwing strikes, and that's what, you know, four-pitch walks or, or pet peeves of mine. I just don't understand them. And, um, and then, you know, 2-0 and o count, I would step off the mound, take a breath, get back. So that's what I tell the pitchers. I said, I, it wasn't, I didn't not walk people because I was never behind in the count. I was just able to make a good quality pitch when I was behind in the count. And that takes practice. You know, uh, in my ERA that year actually was under two until I went to Chicago. And I think I gave up five runs in two or three innings or something. And, and that pushed it up, uh, to, to 2-1. Imagine it pushed it up to 2-1-6. Um, but it was, uh, uh, it was a fun year for me personally. You know, the all-star game, which we talked about, um, the ability to, to go out there and, um, you know, and, and establish myself as a major league pitcher. But actually, if you look at that, I think two of my better games were actually in 1990. I, I had the near perfect game, uh, against the, um, seven perfect innings against the Astros on August 18th, I think, it's 1990. My, it's my birthday. Uh, I remember that. There you go. <laughs> and then, uh, I think it was a 79 pitch complete game win, one base runner. And then I had a game against Tom Browning. 90 or 91 that was a 74 pitch complete game 74 75 pitch complete game uh i won four to one uh chris sabo hit a home run the game was two hours long and um but you know and that's the other thing is i had i had multiple games i think they had some stat up where i had uh, a number of complete game wins and under 80 pitches which uh you know still kind of amazing when I think about that but it was just like you're either going to get me and I'm going to get the next hitter or I'm going to but you know we're not going to take all day figuring it out you know <laughs> uh, so the only people that don't like you know fast games are the beer vendors and you know the hot dog vendors you know everyone else the umpires like to you know fast games the hitters like to get off the field so they can go hit because they really like hitting better than fielding you know, and uh, so why not? Why not make those people happy and get in and off the field? I was a youngster uh, for that perfect game, and ESPN back then on Baseball Tonight it was the only way you could see a, a Cardinal game in St. Louis. I think they did a few Friday night games, but we're watching Baseball Tonight, and they're like Tukes is through six, Tukes is through seven. So my mom, I got to give my mom some credit on this for the first time on the show. She goes, "Do you want? Do you want to go down there?" I said, we'll never get down there. He's going to be done by the time we get down there because oh, he pitches to – I wanted to go, but we were in South County. I'm like, he, he's going to be done with this thing in 10 minutes. So I, I remember yeah. that was the one well, time we were going to hop in the I car and get down there. Well, I was hoping you didn't say you went, and when you got there, Franklin <laughs> Stubbs going to hit because if he had, I'd fly up there now and find you and whoop your butt because you would have changed the karma of the outing. I think Franklin Stubbs' birthday might be August 18th, too. I'm gonna no, look that don't say that. <laughs> so I, re- I really had fun talking to you today. But tell us, uh, most people will know that the book is out now, and how, how can they get it? And what and just give us the kind of what, why uh, why now? Why write a book? Um, you, you're, you're still working with the Giants and doing your thing. So what, uh, what, what, what made you want to do this? Well, uh, this book was a work in progress for years. Uh, it was actually my third attempt with a publisher. So, um, you know, I had a good, sco- a really good co-writer in Scott Miller who writes for the Bleacher Report. 
uh, it was part of, uh, you know, the Giants understood that this was a possibility when I came here. Um, and they've been great about supporting the activities around that. Uh, like I said, it's not about the Giants. It's not about the Red Sox. It's about players. It's about inside the game. And it's on sale March 20th. It can be uh, available at Google. Um, I mean, uh, at Amazon. It's the book company's Hachette Book Group. Uh, it's also going to be available at Barnes and Noble, and uh, I have an audio book coming out well as well. I recorded that a couple of weeks ago, so you can listen to it on audio. And um, uh, and yeah, I think it's uh, really exciting. I'm going to do a signing at the Left Bank Books in St. Louis. I think on May third, third uh, or fourth. Um, so yeah, I'll be in this. I'll be in the city uh, promoting it, and then. I'll come back in September when the Giants come back and I'll be able to, to be there and hopefully uh, people will buy the book, bring it to the park and I can sign them there. That's awesome. We'll have to definitely catch up. I enjoy my time with Bob Tewksbury. I think the last thing I, I, I do want to ask, did you, did you, were you always thinking, were you always a, this, were you always like this? Just like even I, there is a story in the book in 1993 where Joe Torre almost makes it perfect for you and you sort of, had this light bulb go on, but were you always the thinking man's pitcher? And that's sort of kind of how you knew that this would work for you. Uh, what's this success or the book or what, what do you mean? Uh, how, be, to be a would... skills coach, to be, be, oh. to... no, I, I had no idea I was going to do this. I just knew that. Um, but I mean, did you always no. have that think you, did you always do more thinking maybe than you think? Yeah. Like oh. a, let's yeah, say a I Joe, mean, a Joe all... McGrain probably wasn't thinking as much as you were. Let's say that. <laughs> well, I was always, I was, you know, I read Harvey's books about the mental game. I, I was always a student of psychology and performance. Um, you know, when I was in the minor leagues, I bought an audio program. It was cassette tape back then that had breathing and positive mantras and, and things that I made part of my practice imagery every day. And I know it helped me. And, um, so, you know, I was always invested in that as a player. I think it was part of why I was successful. And then to be able to talk about it and coach, uh, you know, players now is good. I actually, in, in conjunction with the book, I have a website that's up. It's bobtukesbury.com. And um, there's, uh, you know, I have a, started a blog and there's going to be some audio programs available on that for purchase and, and uh, people... Uh, want to check that out i think that it's a really good site and hopefully i can connect with some more pitchers um you know to help them fulfill their dreams and understand the importance of 90 percent mental yeah i just like i said i i really i'm really interested in the subject and i i did get the book uh thanks to your publisher and i've read probably 90 percent of it <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's good. I can good. I can tell everybody. I'm not a reader. I, I was hoping for the audio book. I like to just listen and not have to actually get my mind to, to work. But uh, I, I, right. I can definitely suggest Cardinal fans will enjoy it. Baseball fans will enjoy it. And I enjoyed our chat, Bob. As always, always fun enjoying uh, you. Thanks chatting. for having me on, Brad. I appreciate it immensely. And uh, see you in St. Louis uh, over the summer. We will. Thanks. Bob Tewksbury, 90% Mental. He's got a book out. You've got to go read it. And he'll be in town a lot in St. Louis if you're around. That's the, uh, this edition of Baseball Beyond. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.